Hello and welcome to the Blair Upper Cervical Podcast, a show where we interview top Blair Upper Cervical chiropractors to glean their insights, tips, and passion. In each episode, your hosts, Dr. Kevin Pekka and Dr. John Stenberg, bring something unique and inspiring to help you grow and succeed. Enjoy the show. Okay, welcome back to the Blair Technique Podcast. I uh, got my, my host, Kevin Pekka, here, my co-host with me again, and we're excited to bring to the table here a conversation with Dr. Jeff Hanna in Australia. Uh, so we coordinated time zones, we made it all work, and really excited to share a little bit about his story, what he's into. He's one of the people, this is just my opinion, that has a good grasp on many different facets of the Blair upper cervical approach. A lot of folks kind of have their niche, but he's, I think, uh, one of the more well-rounded, just in the understanding of philosophy, science, art, technique, all that kind of stuff. So really excited. There's a lot we could cover. Uh, but Doc, before we jump into the content, I think it'd be helpful for you to introduce yourself. Uh, give us a little bit of backstory about how you got into the Blair work. And then from there, we can uh, get into some of the specifics. Yeah, well, that's no problem. And thank you guys for having me on. So my background, I'm a second generation chiropractor and I was introduced to upper cervical because my dad, when I was going to school at Palmer College, was the um, uh, clinician who was in charge of the Atlas Orthogonal students. And so we did the toggle recoil class and just because of what he was doing and I looked up to him, I thought, okay, this is going to be something that I'll want to get into down the track. Now. I don't think I was quite expecting to get into it the way that I was planning. So when I was still a student, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be predominantly doing manual diversified Gonstead Thompson, the standard package, things like that. And long story short, on the very last day when I was in clinic, I was asked to help out with a case of a young gentleman who was having most horrific, horrific symptoms, problems things like that. And I'm feeling a little squeamish about the whole process here, doing the best we can. I'm not the one who did the adjustment, but it was a, an atlas orthogonal adjustment that my dad did for this particular gentleman. And it was one of those, simply put, miracle response cases. Mm -hmm. And here I was on the brink of graduation thinking, oh yeah, I know my stuff now. I'm good <laughs> to go. And I mean, how did that just happen? wow, that was amazing. I need to learn me some of that. And so that was the, the first of a, a series of turns that took me into the upper cervical world. And so in practice, I started out doing a, a little bit of um, full spine with uh, Atlas Orthogonal. I had moved straight to Australia, so I've never actually practiced in the US or Canada or anywhere else. And started doing a, a bit of the AO work and enjoying what I'm doing, a few years go by, and I'm ultimately starting up in practice on my own. And nevertheless, despite you know really being involved in this, I'm trying to learn as much AO as I possibly can. Um, I'm starting to write a few bits and pieces, things like that. I still have this persistent little problem. And you see, it was something that was called a flex two. And what a flex two was, at least what I knew it as, it was a combination adjustment between the occiput and C2. In other words, there was fixation there. And the only way that it would ever release is if I had to do a manual adjustment. AO wasn't touching it. And I also had a number of people with AO where we'd go ahead, do the analysis, and when it works, it's great. And then other people, it's not working. And I'm not fully understanding why is that. And how is it, you know, if I'm trying to be congruent with what I'm doing, doing just the lightest little tap on the neck and then having to adjust to, a, or excuse me, do an adjustment where I have to manually work on someone, you know, are these things really congruent? And so this was sort of, you know, brewing in the background. And this would have been about 2012. There was a um, upper cervical symposium that was being put on at the New Zealand College of Chiropractic. And I'm like, yes, I am in. And amongst the speakers who uh, attended this uh, would have been uh, Dr. Andy Roberts, um, Dr. Michael Burkhan, Dr. Graham Dobson, who was hosting it, um, Dr. Joe Arano, Dr. Neil Bossinger, and then also two people that you guys would know, Dr. Tom Forrest and Dr. Drew Hall. 
So I'm attending the conference and trying to absorb as much as I possibly can. And again, I'm in practice at five years. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm really starting to come into my own here. And Dr. Forrest proceeds to give just a little bit of an overview of the Blair technique, demonstrating, you know, the way that Atlas moves is not necessarily the way that we think it always used to. We always talk about laterality, about the Atlas riding up along the rim of a circle, when in reality, the Atlas is predominantly flexion extension, forwards and backwards. That's the majority of the component. And I'm sitting in my chair kind of going, oh, geez, I <laughs> the obvious. I know nothing. Yeah. Now, at the same time, even at this point in my career, subluxation is actually still a dirty word. Mm. So even with an atlas orthogonal analysis, you make these measurements, you determine the biomechanical factors that give you the greatest leverage so that you can produce the most movement with the least amount of force, but you don't see the darn thing. So when Dr. Forrest puts up a, an x-ray image of a Blair Protracto view, he doesn't even have to explain what I'm looking at. I know exactly what I'm looking at, and I understand the full implications of what that means, that this thing that oh so many people say does not exist, and in fact is a curse word, well, <laughs> there it is in black and white and gray. Yeah. What's the, not even chiropractically, what's the medical term for a joint that is not dislocated, but it's lost its normal juxtaposition like that in what you would normally expect to see in alignment. Okay, I need to learn me some of that. So that I'm was glad you made that. I'm, I'm glad you made that distinction, Jeff, because a lot of folks that are sort of against that terminology will make that point that, well, the medical definition of a subluxation, this, that, and the other thing, it's like, it's actually the same thing. You know, we're talking about those misalignment parameters and the loss of juxtaposition of the articulation, which is, you know, to a maybe we're looking at it to a lesser degree or to a more finer uh, point. But theoretically and sort of conceptually, we're talking about the same thing. Exactly. And there are certain authors in terms of the, the history of, you know, how we should or should not be using the word subluxation in chiropractic. Some, of course, would be willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But then others would say, okay, yes, in chiropractic, we traditionally talk about something that has the mechanical and the neurological, when what we could actually be saying is that a subluxation is a loss of normal, uh, the way that we would use it chiropractically, that is, a subluxation is an articular malposition with resulting mechanical changes that is affecting the nerve system or the neuromuscular or the neurovascular um, system in some way. You, you have an interesting background. I didn't uh, realize that your father had that AO training. It sounds a lot like Dr. Banich's uh, background when she was discussing her dad being a, a prominent Blair doctor and kind of wanting to go her own way and explore, you know, explore what she thought was uh, the, the latest and greatest, but kind of in a roundabout way ended up back in the upper cervical work. So did your dad learn, um, did he learn traditional HIO type principles at Palmer? No. Well, actually, so, I can make the case, yes. So um, for those of you, despite um, you know, how things may sound, I'm originally Canadian, so is my entire family. Um, but when I was 12, we moved to Davenport, Iowa. That was when my dad started uh, teaching. So when he was in practice, he was doing nothing but full spine. He didn't even own an activator, and he didn't use any SOT blocking or anything like that. He was a CMCC grad. Now, back in those days, the early 80s, you could still use subluxation in the school. You could still look at x-rays, different things like that, but there really was not much emphasis on any upper cervical approach. And in fact, um, he will admit he thought a good chunk of it was hoodoo voodoo. Why? Because that's what he was told. Nevertheless, when he starts at the chiropractic school, and not everybody knows this, even though he was looked at when he was there for the better part of, I think it was around 10 to 15 years, it's like, wow, he's like the AO guy. The reason he was the AO guy was because when he came into the school, they didn't have anybody in the position. Mm. And so they basically said, hey, new guy, we need <laughs> you to learn this. And he, uh, for, for those of you, um, if you're listening to this and you had him as a, uh, as a clinician, um, I'm going to reveal the dirty secret. He was studying this stuff really only a few weeks before you guys were learning it. And he said, all you have to do to look like a genius in the eyes of your students is just be five minutes ahead of them and you can preempt any question they may ever have. That's great. 
Jeff, so your whole world kind of got turned upside down. You discover this great new technique. You're practicing something else. What's going through your mind? What did that transition look like for you? So I was fortunate that I already had um, x-ray in my practice. So I could immediately start taking the, play, uh, the Blair views. And they were awful. They mm. were absolutely awful. But every once in a while, I got one that was exactly the way that it's supposed to work. And in that, I was convinced enough, you know what, I need to do this. So what I did was I, uh, well, amongst other things at this particular um, symposium, was my introduction to how literal I knew about chiropractic history and philosophy. So same thing, I immediately jumped in the deep end. So amongst the things that I started doing, I went out and bought my first green books. Mm. I went out and got myself a myovision unit, not understanding that it didn't have the full pattern analysis. It was a couple of years later, I flipped over to a Titron and started the, the pattern analysis. I also only had my um, speeder board from back in the, the toggle recoil days studying in fourth try at Palmer. And so somehow or another, I'm trying to set this thing up on an AO table. And as you guys, if you may know, an AO table is quite much taller than a side posture table. So my elbows are bent to kingdom come. And this isn't quite right, but there's enough of the principle here. You know what? I'm going to you know, give this a go. I also did do uh, some just trialing thinking, okay, you know, would it be possible to take this information knowing that this is what the Blair articular misalignment is? And can we apply an atlas orthogonal vector to this? Can we derive and come up with some kind of reconciliation? To this day, I believe it's possible, but I wasn't able to figure out what the solution was. So what do we do? Okay, we get a side posture table. So at this point in time, basically, I'm still taking care of a number of people with Atlas Orthogonal. Anybody who's coming new into the practice is getting started with the Blair work. I have the option of going back and forth if and when I ever needed to do so at different times. But then as I was getting more and more involved doing less and less of the AO work, I realized, okay, nope, it's time for me to, to transition, get into this uh, full, uh, full time. So now I've uh, transitioned in pretty much 100% uh, Blair. Did you have anybody with you at that time? Because the Blair work, especially when you learn it like that, you almost need somebody on, like, on call or someone to help to see if you're doing the adjustments. Did you have anybody like that to really help you make that transition? Because if not, that's very impressive. And he, he regrets it to this day. So... At the time, and um, this firstly here, when I first came over to Australia, there were a grand total of around 12 docs that would be doing upper cervical specific work. There would have been more doing toggle recoil, different things like that, but we're talking about the specific kind of work that we're talking about here. And there were a grand total of two who were doing Blair. One was a doc who was trained by Dr. Blair himself. He practiced uh, all out in the middle of nowhere. The other one was a fellow who, when I had met Dr. Forrest for the very first time, he said, um, there's a, an Andrew Glendinning, and I think he lives somewhere on the Sunshine Coast. Do you have any idea where that is? Now, Australia is the same size as the continental U.S. He lived one hour north from me. Wow. So I had the opportunity to start annoying him and harassing him. So <laughs> harassing amongst you know, having him look over my shoulder, I was invested enough in the work to um, you know, immediately purchase the, uh, the training manuals, the instructional DVD, and as much of those different resources as I can. So in this way and in this regard, I'm actually backwards, or at least when I started doing the Blair work, I was backwards from pretty much everybody else who had ever taken it before, who had attended a seminar, had learned from somebody who had gone through the process and then supplemented with the books and the videos and things like that. I basically had to do it the other way around. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason, and I hope that, because I know some of the audience here are going to be students, and you know, here we are still uh, February 2021, stuck in the middle of, okay, well, can we travel this way? Is this on? Can we do this? Can we do that? Um, so I want to testify for you guys that it is absolutely possible with the resources that we have in 2021, that even if you're not able to attend events live, there is a lot of work that you can be doing right here, right now, that you can develop your skill, get more involved, so that ultimately, in whatever form it will be, as the world would begin to open up, you're then able to say, okay, well, I was not 
doing nothing, stuck in my cocoon. I was actually developing my skills. Now that I'm ready to come out, I'm ready to absolutely rock and roll. And that applies to folks that are at schools that don't have that upper cervical presence on campus anyway, regardless of, you know, restrictions and your ability to get face to face with folks. So, uh, Jeff, you're also teaching now. So you're training Blair Docs in Australia and you've got some really, really cool resources and opportunities for that. So we'll just, I'd love for you to plug what you're up to because you have some really cool stuff that you're always pumping out content wise. And I know you didn't ask for this. This wasn't like, uh, you know, mm -hmm. planned, but I, I value what you're doing. So I'd love for you to share that with folks before we move on. Yeah, that's uh, no problem. So just as a, a bit of the, the backstory um, here, um, I've always enjoyed teaching in some form or another. So for me, it's, you know, my hobby. It's kind of my escape doing Blair work and all that sort of stuff. And like anything, if you really want to learn it, the best way of learning it is to teach it to somebody else. So a few years back when I was learning more of the, the pattern analysis work with thermography, um, I was learning it from the, the KCUCS, uh, Rob Kessinger, Mike Anderson, um, awesome program. And I figured, you know what, we in the Blair world, we need something like this and we need to streamline it because our model, based on how we are applying it in conjunction with the uh, Krill and the Thompson-Deerfield and the modified cervical syndrome leg checks, we need to find a way to put these things together. So I created an online module, uh, which is available through the, the Blair site. So that was kind of the, the first one. Then um, after that, because I wanted to shoot myself in the head, obviously, um, and one of the limitations being out in Australia, even when we could fly, is that I was never really able to uh, attend um, any of the courses or sign up for the, the diplomat program. I'd love to do it, but to fly that distance is a monster. Um, time, not a big deal. Price, that's a whole other story. So what did I do? Well, I went back and I restudied all of my old neuroanatomy books so that at least when it comes to what's directly in the firing line because of the, the upper neck, I can know and I can understand that if you were doing my own micro training. And so you want to learn something, teach it to someone else. Well, I made a little module like that. So that's also available now through the Blair website. And by Gosh. the way, he, he says that so nonchalantly, like I made this little module. It's like the, the companion guides, like a hundred pages. There's 30 pages of references. There's hours and hours of videos. I'm working through it. It's phenomenal. It's not, it's no small overview. It's super in-depth and comprehensive. So I know you're playing modest there, but I had to just uh, interject because my head's swimming going through your content right now. For those of you unfortunate enough who have ever attended a, a course that I've been teaching either live or online, you know that I don't pull any punches. And part of the reason why I do that, it's not designed to overwhelm. Well, yes, it is, but it's designed to overwhelm you in a way so that if you're the kind of person who is willing to rise to the challenge and say, wow, I really need to up my game, that you then take that next step to do so. So yes, in all honesty, there is a, a little bit there. I wouldn't have it any other way. Now, last year, I was um, getting all excited because we were about to be teaching a, a few uh, Blair seminars um, down in a few new places, um, including down at the, the new chiropractic school here in Australia in Adelaide. But COVID pin got pulled. And so, all right, well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to try and experiment because in the society, we've talked about this for a while, but we haven't really done it doing online um, training modules for the seminars itself. So what I did was I started tinkering around with the AV and trying to figure out, well, how would we do a live stream? And how could we you know, do this? So I said, okay, well, if you guys were gonna be signed up for this seminar, we're gonna go ahead with it, but it's just gonna be a you know, online version. And of course we can't do the tech, we can demo a few things, but Nope. And at that point in time, if you guys remember March and April in particular, um, the whole world was literally falling apart. People are, you know, yeah. fearing running for their um, student lives, for their business lives, for their family lives, because nobody knows what's about to, to happen. So it was very, very scary. So because it's online, I'm saying, you know what, students, you know, for right or for wrong, I'm not charging for this. You guys are suffering bad right now. I want to give you a gift, something that can you know, be of value for you because right now you're told you can't go to class, you can't do anything. So you want to learn some chiropractic? Okay, let me give you something real special here. 
and I wanted it to, you know, kind of be a big deal. Um, nevertheless, I was not expecting for it to exceed 300 people wow. from all over the world. So we had certainly a number from Australia and New Zealand, but the bulk and uh, the bulk of individuals were uh, from Singapore and uh, Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur. Wow. We also so had a number of people from the UK, a few from Japan, and then uh, also a number of people from Canada and the US. So it was a, a very, very busy day, but it was a, a very big, uh, very big deal. And it was something that um, was fantastic to finally do. So we did that. We did a follow-up. what was it? Was it a Blair module primary. or was it just a chiropractic? No, it was Blair primary. Wow. All those people, huh? Yep. So we, the Blair technique got exposure in parts of the world that had never been before. Very which, cool. It you know, was very cool. Yep. So we, it was good enough that we followed up with an intermediate and then an advanced. Now, not as many people came in and I had to start charging something because the first one just about killed me. Mm. You guys know how intense a Blair seminar is if it's standing over two days. Well, imagine doing the whole thing in one. Wow. That was, oh that my was God. That's why so many didn't come back. They, they, they're still chewing on what you gave them the first round. Partially too, because it was so different from anything that they would have learned. How many hours um, was that? Uh, it was about 10 straight. Oh my gosh. That is impressive. That was fun. <laughs> um, but it, it opened up the window. And so um, same thing is basically going to happen this year. Um, what I've decided I'm going to be doing is when I'm going to be putting on a few live seminars here in my office, I'm going to stream them. So I think that one of the advantages certainly for people, you know, whether they're in the, the U.S. or anywhere else in the world is having the opportunity to learn from a number of different Blair instructors. Mm -hmm. Each of us has our own unique way of teaching. And again, because I had to do it backwards, I wasn't necessarily exposed to the certain way of teaching the way that Dr. Blair would have handed it to Dr. Muncie, to Dr. Topping and Forrest, and then to everybody else since. So a lot of the stuff that I had to learn, I had to figure out in my own head first. So I have a few different analogies and ways of explaining things for people um, that I think offers additional value. Blah, blah, blah. The more people that a Blair doctor can get exposed to, I think the broader their perspective is and the stronger they become. So this is something that I want to be sure is going to be available that I can make myself useful for people, not just here in Australia and New Zealand, but also for people around the world. Um, and so in that, I still am now doing um, monthly free intro webinars um, none of the, the nitty gritty details you want that you got to rock up to the real thing, but simply the introduction to, well, this is how an Atlas actually moves. It moves forwards and backwards. There's this thing called asymmetry and guess what? It matters. You can't ignore it. In other words, giving people an opportunity to dip their toe a little bit into the, the Blair work. And then John, sorry you asked, because now this has taken way too much time because I realized, all right, well, we covered the science, we covered uh, the art, you know, with the technique seminars, but I've also most recently created a, um, a philosophy, a philosophy in history um, online series. So that, yes, if you do want to read all of the green books, I thoroughly recommend that you do so. But especially for those of you who, you know, maybe have heard that there is, you know, there's something called philosophy of chiropractic, but you're told, oh, it's hoodoo voodoo and all that sort of stuff. No, it's not. You just haven't had anybody explain it in a way that's necessarily scientific congruent or showing how it works in conjunction with these other things. So what did I do? Because I had too much time on my hands. Well, we put together another online um, module, uh, which again, that thing here is I we did our first course and we have the second one going right now i think that that thing clocked in at around 15 hours 16 hours something like that wow i would really love to attend uh, an online module um because i did i was i always looked at doctors that have been in practice for 10 15 20 years and there's i was curious i was like puzzled because they're still looking at their manuals they're still studying they're still practicing and i'm like these guys have mastered it. What are they doing? And then this year, I realized I was pulling tissue slack the wrong way on some adjustments. I was just, uh, I was slipping in just like little minute things that really add up the, like the little details, they will get you. And uh, like the first 
year or two in practice, like, I got this. I'm good. Um, and then I saw all, like, I saw you guys just always looking at your manuals, always very specific and detailed down to everything. And um, I was just curious, like, why are they doing that? And then this year, like, I'm pulling tissue slack the wrong way on some adjustments. I'm doing this a little different. And, and it's just the littlest thing can affect the entire adjustment. And I found that out firsthand this year. And that's absolutely the case. Um, at least for me, I can't speak on behalf of everybody else uh, who's in the, the Blair Society and who's been teaching and doing this, of course, a lot longer than me. Simply put, I keep finding new ways that I'm screwing things up, mm -hmm. new improvements. So you start with what you know and what you don't know. But then there's, of course, what you don't know that you don't know. <laughs> and I've heard this said that the, the mark of an expert is not somebody who looks back and says, okay, well, this is everything that I know. But they're profoundly aware of all of the things that they don't know. And so they're always searching and seeking, how do I get that extra something, that next level? I had heard, uh, this is a story just, um, you know, even a few years before he had passed away, um, Dr. Uh, uh, Marshall Dickholt Sr., even in his 90s, is still or was still trying to develop a better way of delivering the adjustment. So to think, okay, well, if a fellow of that caliber is still seeking a higher level, you know, what does that say? What does that mean I should do if I ever would want to be even in that same kind of a category? And as you said it too, each one of those little differences, as tiny as they might be, represents a quantum leap in your next level. So in the value of repeating the Blair seminars, I mean, there's only a certain number of times that you can go over slipping and tracking and things like that. Okay, right. fair enough. But in the same breath, you know, the first time you learn a Blair seminar, you're overwhelmed or go to a Blair seminar, you're overwhelmed because there's too much stuff for you to absorb. Then, okay, after two, three, okay, now you're starting to get the rhythm there. And then after when you start to reattend these things after a while, you may learn only one thing. But that one thing is massive, which yeah. is good enough reason to why to continuously stay and always try to be sharpening the saw. Um, and Jeff, one more thing for you. Um, so I don't think we've asked anybody this question yet, but we're kind of on the topic. Um, I wanted to kind of ask you about flow state where some days you're in your practice and it feels like there is magic coming out of your hands. You're in the zone, everything is lining up. And then there's days where it's like, you can't hit anything. Things are going wrong. And, um, how do you personally get yourself in that sweet spot? Do you notice um, what's going on in the peaks and the valleys? And how do you maintain um, just upper cervical excellence? I don't have an answer for that question. If anybody knew how to habitually get into the zone, mm. then absolutely yes, because we've all been there. We know what that feels like. It's a very good question. And if I knew, and this is tricky because of somebody like me who's very analytical, he would want to dissect it inside. Oh, okay, well, what about this piece? What about this piece? And I could hit on some of the, the common ones that people would talk about. Present time consciousness, making sure that the doctor is clear. Demonsa, that they're well adjusted, that they're in the moment, mm. that they can feel that connection with their hands and their body. And you know what? I think there's absolutely something to be said for each and every one of those. And yet I wouldn't say that that is, you know, necessarily descript in and of itself. So sorry, I don't have a good answer for that one. Well, maybe to follow up then, do you have any sort of practice or uh, ritual or sort of um, routine that you use as you get into uh, your shift or your next, uh, you know, day seeing patients? Do you have a way to kind of prep for those encounters? Well, firstly, I do um, practice reps before every single shift, pretty much every single day um, to get the right feel. And sometimes, usually, you know, if, okay, something's not quite clicking, not quite right, this is not where the, this is not where the answer is, but nevertheless, what do I do? I go back and I look at all of the technical pieces of the adjustment. Mm. What am I doing or what am I not doing? Am I too light, too deep, too hard? Wrong angle. Am I missing something? Am I doing something wrong with my hand? The infinite number of variables knowing, okay, it probably has nothing to do with the physical body. It's probably something to do with the brain. Same 
same breath. I remember this particular day. How does this happen? Um, I was holding out. This was probably three years ago now. Um, I had an acute appendicitis and ended up having to go to the hospital and all that sort of stuff. Now, I thought I was going to be okay. I let it go for about a week. No, 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 I'll be all right. I'll be all right. So I'm nevertheless, I'm in a lot of discomfort, but me mentally wise, I'm still okay. And I remember the day before I was in hospital, people were just clearing out. We're talking straight lines all day, everything <laughs> like that. I'm like, what the heck? How does this, why is this happening? This is not, this is not making any sense whatsoever. So it's kind of, if at anything I have to say, what's one of the keys? It's knowing when to let go, which is not always easy, especially for us who do upper cervical. Why? Because we want to know the who, what, when, where, how, and we want that perfect, clear, that hole in one every single time, whether or not it's mm. possible, that's not up to us. And so it seems that if and when we are able to let that go, but to still deliver excellence that is not becoming complacent or sloppy in the decision-making process, still giving the adjustment in the right way, in the right place, at the right time, and then immediately letting go and just getting out of it, come whatever may, that might be, might be the start of the process. You've only asked the question of, you know, how do you find the answer to infinity? That's all. <laughs> well, Jeff, there, it's one thing as a doctor to maintain that perspective uh, and, and obviously a, a worthy effort to work toward that. The second part of that would be communicating effectively to your patients about expectations with that in mind. So uh, you mentioned you've got some interesting analogies and different ways of communicating. And I'd imagine in a different culture, uh, some of the way that we communicate here in the States might not land in the same way. Uh, so what sort of... Um, communication strategies and what sort of uh, challenges have you had in being able to kind of translate these upper cervical principles and some of that context to the layperson that's just hoping to feel better or to find some relief uh, symptomatically? Well, one of the first things that I would have to say is that you as the chiropractor and as the doctor, you need to understand what those principles are. You need to understand why symptoms do matter but also why they require contextualization. Because without that, you've got no idea what's going on. You've also got to be willing to own up and say, you know what, I don't know what's going on. Now that's kind of scary, especially, you know, in the US, you're told, okay, never say to a person, you don't know what's going on or anything like that. Now, culturally, I'm going to say this, most of this stuff, you know, whether it's Australia or the US, Canada, is going to be pretty similar. So people know when you are reading the lines, telling a script versus when you're talking to them like a human being, yeah. when you know that you know something. So when you speak from that place, there's not a question. So that requires then that you absolutely know it. Now then, you do nevertheless need to be able to speak in a way that they understand. And so, especially when it comes to the, the nuance of the body, the physiological, the innate mechanisms, how these work, the honest answer is, is nobody knows. So we understand biochemistry, bits and pieces of it, but one of the major elements, especially in terms of, again, between A and B in the body, the body is not linear. The body is multifactorial and it's quantum. Lots of things can happen. A can cause B, C, D, or E. We don't have that control. So by understanding that principle, communicating, yes, we do have, and we need to have reasonable expectations here, yes. But are you going to start to then, you know, guarantee anything? No, that's going to be absolutely silly. So to be able to then take these processes, admitting what we know, but also saying clearly what we don't know, then we're able to explain these processes to people in terms of analogy and metaphors. Usually the way that I find works the very easiest. Now on the same train of thought, we always like to talk with docs about how they manage case management and how they sort of work folks through an initial phase of care and get them to a point of uh, reasonable stability and improvement. So how do you think about that uh, objectively with the things that we measure within the Blair work? How do you program care for folks? And uh, what are your sort of like your end goals for the initial phase of care? Okay, just as a broad brush overview of what the general process that we do. The first thing that um, we started doing a couple of years back 
um, was we started having um, introductory consultations with people on the phone. Purpose of that was, okay, let's get a bit of information. You know, do you have something that I think that I can help? And of course, this was also freeing me up in the time, but it also gave me the opportunity to lay out what the initial expectations were. So this is what we're gonna do. This is what our office charges. And this is what I'm gonna be recommending. Now, this isn't meant to diagnose you over the phone, but you know, ballpark, based on what you're telling me, I think that it's gonna cost this. Now, one of the principles that we do work with is that no matter who a person is or what they have going on, it's gotta be abundantly clear that they're getting better within 12 weeks. Hmm. Shorter than that, eh, maybe not a fair go. Longer than that, it doesn't mean that they're doing the wrong thing, but it means they're doing the right thing in the wrong order. So it's like a combination lock, and especially for those of us doing upper cervical work, we've got people who challenge us to our core. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the answer is not in the upper neck, it's in something else. We're doing the right thing in the wrong order. And a lot of times, we know this too, people have gone to upper cervical docs and they've gotten these absolutely amazing things and they conclude, oh, well, I wasted those 20 years doing all of that other stuff when this is what I needed all along. Well, maybe, but if the upper cervical chiropractor was the first person you saw and you still needed all that other stuff, guess what? It wouldn't have looked like it did a darn thing because you needed the other pieces in play. So especially with some of the more challenging kinds of cases, you know, giving them that perspective there about this is what my role is going to be. And these are the parameters that I'm going to put on. So God, there's going to be rules to this. Now, what we do then in the way that I figure out, you know, what's an appropriate level of recommendation, because, you know, ideally, yeah, I'm only going to have to adjust you once and it's going to be good forever and ever again. <laughs> In principle, that's great, but that's not always the reality. Why? Because people can have multiple injuries, multiple layers of trauma. And unless a person has discovered a cure for time, gravity, and the continued stupidity of daily living, we've got stuff that we have to contend with. So what's appropriate level? One of the things that I actually use to get a, a bit of perspective on that is actually not something that we officially look at in the Blair work. I look at a person's posture. So for those who do or don't know, I've actually studied portions of pretty much all of the upper cervical techniques. I'm not, I'm not professing to be master or expert in all of them because I'm not, but I know a, a good chunk about a lot of them. And so one of them that fascinates me the most is probably the one that ironically I'm going to say is the closest to Blair work. It's QSM3. And it's because they are looking at the cervical spine as a whole, more from a tonal perspective. But what do they do? They use a form of posture analysis as a way of determining, okay, this is where we need to go. Where are things congruent? Where are they not? Now, I don't know how many other people are doing this. And for all I know, it might just be me. But I see very significant correlations between what QSM3 work is doing and the Blair listings that we see. So I can look at a person's posture and I have a sense based on what I'm seeing and based on probability, okay, am I only needing to look for one major or do I need to look for two things or three things? So is this person gonna be a double major? Does this person have a major but a potentially significant minor? And if so, most likely where is it? So through that process of discovery and over that 12 weeks, we're working to try to tease out of the situation what's the most appropriate level of doing an initial adjustment, monitoring progress after that. And then of course, at the end of 12 weeks, reassessing formally, even though because we're doing tests the whole way along and not just you know thrusting on a person's back willy-nilly, we're kind of doing a reassessment every single day, but doing the formal reassessment at the, uh, the three month mark and determining what's appropriate to do thereafter. Jeff, I have, I have to ask right, because there's, there's gonna be people listening that are like, screaming at the at the microphone here please elaborate on this idea of extrapolating some of these things from posture and give us an example uh, obviously it's contextual and, and patient specific but can you give an, an example of a pattern that you've recognized related to Blair listings and posture which obviously is not diagnostic we're not suggesting that you look at someone's posture and then adjust the Blair listing based on it but if you had to uh, share an observation just to kind of whet folks appetite with that uh, what would you have to offer? Oh, I can certainly do that. Um, and I will also add this as far as, and this is one of the, the beauties, I think, especially with um, everything that's happening in the upper cervical community as a whole, 
is the recognition that if any one of us had it all figured out, everybody would be doing it with 100% success, that's all. So when you do that, okay, fine, tell me, please. Until then, we all have a lot to learn from each other. And there's gonna be dead ends. There's gonna be a lot of dead ends, but nevertheless, it's the process of growth and discovery. So in posture, and this is for right or for wrong, my brain, the way that it works in a nutshell is I can take, this is one of my gifts, I think. I can take a stupid amount of information. I can take out the essential pieces of it. I can condense it. I can repackage it, recompartmentalize it, and then reteach it in a way that guess what? It's gonna take twice as long, mm -hmm. but you're gonna understand it much clearer because I will be able to show you the relationships. I will be able to show you the patterns. And so it's gonna stick, hopefully a little bit quicker. So one of the things that I am most fascinated with, and I always have been, in irony, it actually go, it goes right back to that flex two problem that we talked about all the way back in the day, is if you have a certain kind of misalignment, and let me just say, okay, let's assume person had an injury and it produced a simple ASR. What then is the logical and the normal compensatory pattern that will happen at both a segmental and at a global level elsewhere down through the spine? So in Blair, we understand segmental asymmetry. It's ubiquitous, we can't ignore it, and yet the body will nevertheless make the effort to maintain global symmetry. That's why we can use a leg check. Think about it, if you've got asymmetries all over the place, what validity would there ever be in a leg check? And yet the body is gonna to try to maintain that balance plus or minus about three millimeters all the way through. So nevertheless, if you're looking at muscle tension, muscle tension patterns and the way that that will manifest through segmental, not subluxation, but compensatory misalignment, what will you see? So as one example, okay, if an ASR, it's not uncommon that you would see a compensatory C2ARS, but don't touch it. If you do, it's gonna go blow, it's gonna blow back in your face. Why? Because it was a compensation, it wasn't the primary. You get the primary, compensation usually goes away over a period of time. But what about a PLI? That's different. That's in fact mechanically going the exact opposite way. Mm. Should that be there? This is basic Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. But when is it appropriate if the PLI, when do you leave it alone versus when is it actually significant? When should you adjust it? When should you not adjust it? And so for wetting your appetite, this is something I've observed in people now for the last two, three years. I really need to write a paper on this because I haven't done it. So maybe somebody else, if you're a student and if you need to do some kind of a research project, please get in contact with me. But in brief, one of the things that's looked at in QSM3, again, from a postural perspective, and tension through the connective tissue, the myofascia of the body, is what's called a, a torso twist. And so it's the idea that if you're looking at the shoulder relative to the, the ASIS, or the pelvis, if you would, that they are supposed to be coplanar in the same orientation. If one is rotated anterior, the other should be rotated anterior, plus or minus about three degrees. When the two are going in opposite directions, the shoulder goes forward and the hip goes backwards on the same side, that's a problem because it means that the myofascia of the body is in a twist. Well, if it's twisting through the torso, guess what? There's probably gonna be a twist also occurring at C1 and C2, but it's likely compensating. Why doesn't my atlas hold? Why do I have to adjust it every bit? Because it could well be compensating for something else. So wetting your appetite, and this again, this is observational, but nevertheless, why is it then that every single case of dizziness that I have seen for the last two to three years has exhibited this type of a twist? Mm. That does not mean that every person who has the twist who experiences dizziness, but in my observation, every person who experiences, not, not vertigo, but dizziness, disequilibrium, every single person has this twist going on. How fascinating. And yeah, that I really is. is that, that solving that twist is the key for that symptom to be able to dissolve. Wherever when, uh, it so happens to be that you would adjust. When I was in chiropractic college, Dr. Friedman's office was 
not far away and he would host students to come over and, and preview QSM3 and work on the technique and he would buy us dinner and have all that kind of stuff. And he would do this dance, you know, where he would shift the head and twist the posture and talk about collapsing in the myofascial envelope and releasing the tension through these different contacts on the skull and down in the neck and all over the place. And watching him work was, in, he, he's an intense guy. Um, watching him work on folks, it was a pretty involved process. Like with a Blair adjustment, we're, we're used to a quick sort of thrust. And, uh, you know, they're really spending some time working through that myofascial envelope. So fascinating concept. I remember talking to him about biotensegrity and uh, this this concept that, you know, anything can affect anything. And we're looking for the most appropriate window into the system to unravel as much as possible. So uh, that's a that's a fascinating uh, that's a fascinating observation. I'm hoping someone takes you up on, you know, putting that out into a more formal offering because I think a lot of folks would uh, it would fill in a lot of gaps for folks that have struggled to you know maybe crack the nut on some of those cases. So I think Blair and QSM3 together cracks the case because QSM3 was the first upper cervical technique I found and. It wasn't clearing me out all the way, but for a day or two, when my posture was untwisted, I would feel pretty damn good. And then gravity would come back down and I would still kind of compensate again. And then I would get that Blair adjustment and it completely cleared out me neurologically and I still had some postural issues. And so I would hold my Blair adjustment for a long time. And one of my friends in school was into QSM3 and he was able to work on me QSM3 adjustment without ruining the integrity of the Blair adjustment. And it was pretty eye-opening when both those two things were working together. And see, that's the key. That is the key that I am fascinated with. One, one of my mentors who I tried to learn as much as I possibly could um, from was, was Dr. Uh, Art Addington. Uh, so Dr. Blair's successor in the, the Blair Clinic down in Lubbock. And so his lifelong um, obsession passion, all that was finding just that it was okay. Well, when is it Atlas axis, but when is it elsewhere in the spine? But this is the key that does not kick out the major mm. when it's its own independent entity that we as a chiropractor may have the capacity to, you know, address ourselves. Now there may be times, yes, different technique. So we refer to a different chiropractor who does something, but of course, not if it's going to kick their atlas out, then no, this is not, this is not a good procedure for you. But if it's addressing its own independent thing, bingo, that's it. So one of the things that I use in addition to thermography, in addition to leg length patterning, is as a way of discerning where do I go, I'm using this QSM3 analysis and then applying a Blair adjustment as opposed to using the, you know, basically the triceps pull um, in order to get to the release. Ultimately, it gets down to, you know, what's the, what's the etiology of subluxation? Mm. Why, and, and, why does it happen? At what, at what level? Is it joint? Yeah. And then what are the systems that are involved? Why does it relapse? And then how do we allow the thing to ultimately release as much as possible so that it can be stable for as long as possible and under the body's control? And one of the things I keep coming back to with these types of conversations is just an appreciation for the versatility of the Blair work. Uh, in your contacts and options for adjustments to be able to account for as, as much of this as you want or can or need to uh, beyond just things like, well, there's a boil on the neck or they can't lay on their shoulder or this kind of thing with side opposite adjustments, for example. Um, you talked earlier about doing the right things in the wrong order. Uh, for someone who's struggling with understanding how and when that might be the case, um, what would you provide as a little bit of context for knowing when you're doing the right thing, but you might be a little bit out of sequence or maybe missing uh, some additional, you know, piece of the puzzle that would help unlock the, the full value of the Blair work that you're doing. Well, oftentimes these are the kind of um, people where they have been experiencing a number of different issues. So these are the fibromyalgias. These are the um, neuralgias, uh, the suboccipital neuralgias in particular. These are the vertigo um, kinds of people. These are the ones who have already been to Dr. A to Z and who have not been able to get any results or they've gotten a little bit here and a little bit there. So simply put, I'm able to give them the proper frame about what's actually going on and say, simply put, you know what? I'm going to do my very best here because the reality is, is if this is simple, if this was just simple, surely somebody would have been able to figure it out by now. 
So by default, this has to be something more complex. And so it has to then be something that's going to be a little bit more counterintuitive. Now, in addition to that, you know, I used to be that kind of person where, okay, yep, Mrs. Jones, because it was always Mrs. J Mrs. Mary Jones, it was always Mrs. Mary Jones, very sick woman, <laughs> that this is your film doing a formal report of all of that sort of stuff. I don't really do that anymore. It's more, I'm just, okay, this is what you have. This is what's going on. This is what I'm going to do. This is what the plan is. And so I don't usually talk too much about this is the way that the atlas and your neck is misaligned and all that sort of stuff. But what I do tell them is if they've been down this road, and especially if they've got an AS misalignment, I say, guess what I found? Okay, you've been to all of these people here where my guess is, is they've been pushing on the back of your neck or trying to poke or something like that. Guess what I found? I found that that vertebra is actually gone forwards. So if I was to push it from behind, what do you think that's going to do? Oh, that's going to make it worse. Exactly. So I don't know how we're going to go, but guess what? I'm going to do it the exact opposite way, and it's something different. So it's just giving them the, the framework where it gives them permission to understand that it's not that everybody else has disserviced them or that somebody's done something wrong, because oftentimes that's not the case. It also, it helps me, because as we all know, it's like we have those people that despite our best effort, why is this person not responding and we don't know why i mean sometimes we do there's a number of different wild cards that can get in the way of a, a person's you know ability to respond um major one that i always come across are uh, cranial and tmj issues those can be massive and so i'm not saying it gives me a, a get out of jail card but it also sets the reasonable expectations because i want that person to be well and i want them to be well yesterday and i'll do my very best but they, so they know that I'm going to be on their side and I'm going to do whatever it takes to help them out. Whether or not I am the one who solves all of those issues for them, they will know that I am willing to do whatever it takes so that they can be well, even if it's not with me. What's the uh, sort of general healthcare climate like in your area in your region as far as collaboration with other providers are they are they open to working with you on some of these concepts and ha having healthy co-management relationships or do you find that there's a bit of resistance when working amongst other professionals with patients it depends very much on the individual practitioner so as is the case in the u.s you have chiropractors out here who want to kill each other for taking x-rays for taking care of kids for using the s-word subluxation so that's usually the nasty part. And you've also got, you know, sub very tiny, but groups with a lot of political sway that look to push certain agendas, different things like that. The majority of individuals though, at least the ones who are quite very switched on, they understand that, okay, well, here's a, a fun and interesting, again, philosophy concept, purpose concept, okay. Is the purpose of a chiropractic adjustment to make a person healthy? Does a chiropractic adjustment make a person well? Hmm. I would. Don't I would we say like that to, all the time? Would, you know, I would like to believe so. <laughs> I'd like to believe so. Okay, right. but you know this. You suspect there's a tra there's a trap here. Yeah. Health in and of itself is a multifactorial expression. It requires at least that a person has good exercise, the body is strong, good nutrition that they're getting adequate amounts of sleep, that they don't have too much stress and that they're adapting to it appropriately and that their body is working in all of its capacities, heart, lungs, nerves, and all that sort of stuff. So guess what? If you have a one issue in any one of those areas, but you're working in the wrong spot, will you be healthy? So let's say that your person, they're working, they, they have a subluxation and they're trying to fix it with their nutrition. Will they be as healthy as they could be? No. Or they're trying to fix a subluxation when what they actually have is they have way too much stress in their life, bad relationships, PTSD, all of this sort of stuff. Oh, and they don't want to go there. So is the adjustment in and of itself without them, you know, dealing with that, is that going to necessarily make them healthy? I would make the case no. 
So health, because it's dynamic and has all of these moving parts, there's not that single linear relationship. So same thing is when healthcare practitioners, be it chiropractors, be it GPs, nutritionists, dentists, massage therapists, physiotherapists, acupuncturists, when we each understand this is the role that we each play in the mosaic to increase the potential for a person to be well and healthy and the respect not to bump somebody else out of the lane saying, oh, well, I don't have your qualifications, but I'm still smarter than you. That's when we actually have the opportunity to work together for the ultimate best interest of the, the patients. Maybe a little bit of utopia, but principle, that would be nice. So as far as chiropractors, that's where it's important to understand what we do and what we don't do. So, Jeff, we are running into a little bit of a good problem here. Me and John still have several questions we want to ask you, and I, I, don't, I think John feels the same way. I don't feel like cramming it into 10 minutes just to get them answered. Um, we would love to have you back on again. Um, I don't know what your schedule looks like, but if we could do a part two of this episode, that would be phenomenal if you have the time. And Jeff, what I think we will do, because I know there are going to be listener questions along with this, uh, these topics as well, You've given folks a lot to think about. I want the listeners to send your questions to us at blairchiropodcast at gmail.com. We'll put the uh, email address in the show notes there so that if anything comes up that you would like to have uh, Jeff address specifically beyond just what Kevin and I have, uh, we love to, to bring that to uh to the conversation as well. So kind of an ask the, ask the expert type of scenario. So uh, if Jeff, if you're okay with that, I think it'd be a great, uh, great time to start to wrap up, leave a little bit of a cliffhanger because there's a lot of depth we could go into with this stuff. And we didn't even get into philosophy or business or any of the other topics that we like to discuss. So um, if that's cool with you, let's uh, tentatively plan on a couple weeks out. We'll get, we'll revisit this. And I want to challenge the listeners to uh, check into this podcast uh, do a little introspection, come up with a few smart questions, send them our way, and we will get those answered for you in the next episode. Well, th thank you guys for having me. And I appreciate anybody who's uh, suffered all the way through listening to a bit of these mad ramblings. Um, so yeah, I'll be happy to come back as long as your listeners are aware of two things. Number one is I still don't consider myself to be a um, world-class expert. Um, there's still a number of people, number of people where despite my best efforts, you know, so, something's not right. And I still have a lot more to learn to be able to help them. I feel like I have a long way still to go, but nevertheless, I will offer what value that I can. Now with that, then keep in mind what I've already told you guys in this podcast. And that is, I will have no problem. You can ask any question you want, but two things. Number one, I will tell you if I don't know, mm -hmm. or at least I'll give you a hypothesis, but you're also giving me the opportunity to do research. And what did I said? All I have to do is be five minutes ahead of you guys <laughs> and I will look like a genius. So sure, feel, feel free to do that. Although these guys here, I'm sure what they'll do is they'll keep the questions from me and then just put them on as a surprise. So that'll clearly recognize like, wow, this guy's not quite as bright as he seemed. Yeah, for anybody that doesn't know, we like to send our guests a, a few show notes ahead of time so that they're prepped for the conversation. So we, we put this one on a tee for him, but we're going to come next time and see what he's really got uh, yeah, for us. But, but Jeff, we really appreciate it, man. And, and from Kevin and I and the rest of the Blair Society, we appreciate all the hard work that you've done to uh, promote the Blair technique abroad and uh, also within you know, all the resources that you've taken time out of your life to put together for us all to level up. I uh, really appreciate that. They're great resources. We're going to make sure that we have the links to all that stuff here in the show notes so that you could check out the neuroanatomy module. If you want to be uh, that much more proficient and familiar with all of the different aspects of what's going on in the cranial cervical junction. Uh, if you've had any questions or, or issues related to thermography, how to obtain a proper pattern, how to uh, properly perform scans, how to interpret pattern and Context with all the other things that we look at in Blair, highly recommend the thermography module that Jeff put together, very comprehensive there too. And uh, you know, I know that you're working on a lot of other stuff behind the scenes, so appreciate your efforts. Uh, it's definitely the type of thing that is uh, you know, very much appreciated by those of us that are learning uh, from your hard work. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. 
Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and check the show notes for links to our hosts, guests, and other relevant information. And head on over to www.blairchiropractic.com to find out more about Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractic or to find a doctor close to you. If you're a chiropractor or healthcare provider, you'll want to look at www.blairtechnique.com for information on upcoming events, professional development resources, and some very useful online training modules. You can also find a link to make a charitable donation, which is greatly needed to advance research. Until next time, be well.